you know, we're, we're trying to globally as a fire service, we're trying to change a culture in terms of health to promote health and wellness. And I think that happens from two perspectives, right? From essentially the, the, the grassroots level up. And so it's, it's, you know, not only kind of hiring, you know, individuals who are, are health and wellness minded, but those that might not have been to exposing them through educational programs and things like that, um, whether it is dietary, you know, health, whether it is mental uh, health, uh, dietary intake or mental health and physical health. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, it's going to start to kind of diffuse, if you will, kind of through, through the levels, but um, I think it's a top-down and a bottom-up approach, and, and, and that's critical from that perspective. The First Responder Liaison Network is proud to present to you the Kitchen Table Podcast, where our guests come share their stories, their perspectives, and their message, talking all things leadership. Now, here's your host, Berlin Mazza. Good morning. Welcome to The Kitchen Table, episode 26. Our show is brought to you by the First Responder Liaison Network. The network is organized for the development, implementation, and ongoing support of mentorship and professional development programs, inspiring our youth and young adults to mature into engaged civic leaders and resilient community sentinels. Music and graphics are brought to you by Kai Elephant Productions. And today on the show, we have Dr. Mark Abel. Mark is the director of First Responder Research Laboratory at the University of Kentucky and member of the Portuguese Police Research Center. He conducts research to enhance the safety, health, and readiness of firefighters and law enforcement officers. Additionally, he has served as a firefighter. He received the National Strength and Conditioning Association's Tactical Strength and Conditioning Practitioner of the Year Award and Senior Investigator Grant to conduct research on firefighters. He served as an inaugural member of the NSCA's Tactical Strength and Conditioning Facilitator Certification Exam Development Committee, and chair the TSAC Special Interest Group. He serves as a contributor and reviewer for the TSAC report. Mark owns Tactical Fitness Institute, which develops legally defensible physical ability standards for fire departments and law enforcement agencies. Good morning, Dr. Abel. Thank you so much for joining us on the kitchen table today. How are you? Hey, Berlin. Doing well. Thank you for the shameless plugs there. I appreciate <laughs> that. Hopefully my bosses were listening. Yes, yes, and we can uh, we can ensure that as well. <laughs> well, so uh, with us today as well, I want to thank Manny Romero today of Seattle Fire Department for making this connection. As our listeners know, uh, we're able to extend and elaborate and expand this leadership conversation uh, due to our guests to help us further the conversation outwards. So you are our first, uh, uh, we'll say, uh, strength and conditioning and doctor and researcher uh, thus far here on the kitchen table. Um, so thank you so much for being a guest and thank you, Manny, uh, for the challenge. So before we do get going, I do want to ask Manny uh, for maybe sharing a little bit about his why. Like Manny, you could have uh, selected a lot of people uh, to be a leadership guest on our show, but you selected Dr. Abel. So if you don't mind uh, sharing, Manny, about your why, Dr. Abel, today. Well, yeah, um, I'll first start by maybe having listeners backtrack a little bit and listen to that bio. That's a big reason why there. <laughs> um, but I'll also start by mentioning that uh, I hope the conversation around health and well-being of firefighters continues to um, to just be discussed at the leadership level and maybe even at some point start to expand a little bit. Uh, I think it helps to have a subject matter expert like Dr. Abel here to provide insight on 
various topics regarding and surrounding uh, health and well-being for firefighters. Um, roughly over the past five years, I've seen like a bit of an increase in human performance programs or similar pieces of that uh, across departments nationwide. Um, I think these programs probably take a little bit of time to get off the ground, mm-hmm. right? Because they need support from, diff- uh, from different stakeholders so that they can be successful. Uh, you know, subject matter experts, you know, officers within the fire department, chiefs, city leaders, et cetera. Um, so the conversation around having a comprehensive health and wellness program for fire departments, to me, is a, a, a leadership challenge in itself. Mm-hmm. Every department has its own set of rules that need to be followed. They have their own political landscape that they need to navigate through. Uh, so I hope that more departments start to agree that implementing these types of programs can be done. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of figuring out how to do it. Um, so again, I hope the more that we discuss health and wellness programs and what other departments are doing and getting good inf- insight from folks like uh, Dr. Abel here, um, we can start providing listeners from other departments with enough of a framework to help expedite that process. So that way something that takes maybe a couple years to get off the round, maybe only takes one now. Yeah. Um, and that they can start sh- believing that it can be done. Absolutely. Well, that's uh, well, thank you so much, Manny for that. And uh, I think that, goes to everything we we talk about here is you know everything starts with a conversation and I think we're going to learn a lot today from the doctor and uh, I'm certainly going to take away a whole lot here so I'm excited for this and uh, I'm really intrigued to see you know the research that you're doing currently doctor I've listened to some of the other podcasts that you've been on and so I really want to kind of elaborate a little further but before we get there I do have to um ask you to share maybe a little bit about you doctor and then uh I see the background there. Uh, maybe we'll mention very briefly about strength and conditioning and then Kentucky football, but maybe more importantly, maybe equally important, Kentucky basketball, right? But yeah, would you mind sharing a little bit, doctor, about uh, you, your career, hobby, stuff like that before we just dive right into this conversation? Sure, yeah. Thanks, Berlin. Um, and, and thanks, Manny, for for that challenge and, and introduction. And I know the listeners really appreciate your perspective on, you know, being being boots on the ground in terms of how do we implement and take these these health and wellness programs to the next level and, and navigating, you know, the the political, the logistical landscape within a fire department. Um, I really appreciate your perspective um, in terms of navigating those challenges and, and stuff. So thank you for for that insight and stuff. So um, yeah, Berlin, a little bit of background about myself. Um, you know, I was kind of a, a high school, a, a jock in high school, but never good enough to compete collegiately. So it's like, well, where does life go from here for for Mark and you know, I was, um, as a senior in high school, I actually worked in my local fire department on Fridays, just kind of a work study thing to, to, as an internship and, and kind of a job shadow experience. And I really loved that. I loved kind of getting, you know, a little piece of, of experience in, in the fire service. So, you know, kind of things went on. I, I, I was going for my associate's degree, living at home. Um, and I went through my local fire academy over, uh, about a year period. And uh, went through the academy and was able to work as a paid on call firefighter for uh, a few years. Um, so it was a really limited time. I think I only had two working structure fires. Um, one of them, one of them was a legit restaurant um, that that uh, you know made quite a mess. But um, the other one was a chimney fire, and in a small department. The chief was up on 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 the roof, hmm. and the chief's like, "Abel, 
get up here. So, you know, the volunteer guy uh, got to, got to get up there, there and, and get a little bit of action. And um, these were the days before we were really, um, you know, uh, cognizant of wearing the, 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 sure. the SCBA and, and the respirator. And so, you know, I'm dropping down chains down there to break up the soot in, in the, the chimney fire and um, wasn't wearing a respirator. And for two days, I didn't forget about um, sure. that. But um, so I, I was exposed to a number of things, you know, in the fire service and um, from that limited experience. And, and so now it's kind of come full circle for me. Yeah. You know, went through educational training, was going to be a personal trainer, then a strength and conditioning coach. And ultimately went on to get my PhD in exercise physiology, but I have, you know, a strong strength and conditioning background and now able to come full circle and apply kind of that experience in strength and conditioning, that education in strength and conditioning and and exercise physiology and able to apply it to firefighters and other, you know, first responders. And so anything that um, my lab can do to help enhance the health safety and the readiness of firefighters is, is kind of where our bread is, is butter. So tell me a little bit about more of uh, your lab. What, so what, what, what exactly are you, uh, you, you and your team uh, researching? I know you do a lot of different research, but what are some of your focuses? Yeah. So, you know, we've kind of spanned the health safety and readiness continuum. We've done some work in, e- in each of those areas. Um, and, and I will mention, first of all, though I'm talking right here, it is a team effort. That's a great term to use. And so, you know, all the research that we've done is a product of my students, um, undergraduate, graduate students for the last 17 years. And so um, I'm so thankful to have had a great group of, of students to support our work. But <laughs> You know, from like a health perspective, we looked at um, cardiovascular disease is a major issue in both fire law enforcement. We've looked at predictors of sudden cardiac events, number one or two killer of firefighters on duty or sudden cardiac events now. Um, And so we've looked at arterial stiffness in firefighters and looked at, and that's a predictor of cardiovascular disease and worked with our local fire department on that and, and looked at essentially is fitness or fatness a bigger factor in predicting increased arterial stiffness, which is bad and an increased risk factor for for heart disease and stuff. So um, it it turns out that fatness trumps fitness in there. So, you know, if we think we can be a little bit overweight, uh, if we're more fit, well, you got to look out. Weight management turns out it turns out it's it's really important aspect in in at least that measure or that predictor of cardiovascular disease and stuff. And we've We've done the same. I know we're in fire, but we've done the same with law enforcement in terms of trying to predict through lifestyle factors, dietary intake, physical activity levels, occupational stress, looking at those as predictors of cardio of arterial stiffness in law enforcement officers. So we've, we've spent a fair amount of time looking at cardiovascular disease. We've also looked at in firefighters um, identifying other risk factors, blood, pr- blood pressure, cholesterol, mm-hmm. physical activity levels, obesity levels. And how that is associated with physical fitness. Interestingly, if you look at the the twelve met standard, right, um, that that we have, and in, in, in it's it's recommended by the National Fire Protection Association. Um, it turns out that that standard, although it's meant to promote readiness, can you do the job safely? You should have an aerobic capacity of twelve mets. Um, but it turns out that's a great delineating factor stratifying individuals based on risk of heart disease mm-hmm. in the fire service. So if you do meet that standard, 
more times than not, or more of those risk factors are going to be in a, in a healthy, uh, a healthy place. If you're below that standard, you're going to tend to have a number of cardiovascular disease risk factors, positive risk factors and stuff. So it's interesting that the same factor that we use to promote fitness and readiness also yeah. seems to be, you know, distinguished between those who are at greater risk of cardiovascular disease. So, um, so we've done stuff on health, um, from kind of a, um, an occup occupational demand or readiness perspective, We've done a lot of research looking at the impact of the PPE that it has on ability to do the job, ability to perform. Um, so, for instance, this research is from another lab, but I'll I'll kind of set set it up this way. Aerobic capacity or VO two max is really important, as I just mentioned. That's what the twelve met capacity is is based off. But research from other labs have indicated that the gear negatively impacts firefighters aerobic capacity. And Manny, Manny knows, knows mm -hmm. this very well. That research shows that if you put a firefighter on a treadmill and you take them to exhaustion to measure their, their aerobic fitness level, that the mass of the gear reduces their aerobic capacity by about 5%. Mm -hmm. Then when you put the respirator on them at maximal levels of exertion, the positive pressure that you're trying to forcefully exhale air against, okay? Because the positive pressure is meant as a safety measure where if you have a, a little bit of a crack or a leak in the flange on your face, it's not fitted right, you're not gonna get smoke in, right? It's gonna push it out. Yeah. But at maximal levels, the, the respiratory or expiratory muscles get fatigued trying to exhale against that positive pressure and it reduces aerobic capacity by an additional 15%. 15, so wow. now you take the mass, plus the positive pressure, and you have essentially a 20% aggregate or cumulative reduction yeah. in aerobic fitness, which is really the foundation of performance and ultimately safety for firefighters. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's interesting. Can I lean on something real quick? Please. Um, so it's, uh, so these numbers, I'm trying to wrap my head around some of these numbers here is so 20%. How does, how, cause you've, you've all heard it actually, Annette, who was on the show last week talked about uh, training and gear. So, mm. And how you you shouldn't train in your firefighter gear. Uh, obviously, you got to train and do the drills in your gear. But as far as training, uh, not so much in your gear for a variety of reasons. But I guess um, how does? Because I'm I'm assuming you've done the research on this and you've had uh, firefighters come in. You've got the data on people coming in. How do you train to then? Because I've always believed in you, you got to train specifically. Or, you know, because, you, you know, right. people come in and they, you know, uh, apply to the fire department. It's like, oh, I'm in shape. I'm in great shape. Well, great. What do you do? I play basketball. I ski. I do this. That's all awesome. But, like, I was a basketball player coming in, and I was in shape for a basketball player, not as a firefighter. So right. my point is, is uh, what is the what, – what have you found is the best way to then – uh, counteract that 20% in reduction that, you know, firefighters are going to be in a deficit once you put on the gear and that, that, that respirator on their mouth, how, how do we train to not have such a large deficit? Yeah, that's a great question, Berlin. And there's, there's not necessarily an easier, straightforward answer to that, because I think it's a little bit of a compromise in, in this, when we talk about total gear respirator and, and the gear itself, the, 
the, the short answer to that is there's been a little bit of research that indicates that if you do like hit style training, and I believe this study um, was was done on a on a bike, essentially short bouts, all out bouts on a bike while wearing the respirator. Uh-huh. Not, I don't believe any of the PPE was worn, just breathing through the respirator. So you had to breathe against that positive pressure. You had the airway resistance. Yes. That has been shown, um, I believe, to, to decrease that decrement, to kind of attenuate that negative effect of the positive pressure system. So, you know, there's companies out there that have a restricted breathing yes. kind of element of it. The effectiveness of those, you know, kind of can go in, in either direction, but training with an SCBA on yes. is like you said, because of the specificity principle, it works. So yes. we do need to do stuff with it on. The caveat though, as you'd mentioned that, you know, AZ was talking about probably, and what my concern is, is it's it's probably not very safe for us to be training in full PP all the time because of the heat stress related illnesses and injuries that, that could, you know, occur because of that. Yeah. Because, you know, unlike a, an endurance athlete that's yeah. going to race in a hot and humid environment, if they go and train in that environment, they get physiological adaptations where the onset of sweating happens at a lower core temperature. That's a benefit to keep them cooler. The longer they can keep their temperature cooler, the better their cardiovascular efficiency is. Well, it doesn't matter when you're wearing full turnout gear, you're going to start sweating instantly. There's It's uncompensable heat stress. You can't adapt to that. Yes. And so you're just putting them, that's the risk you run if you train in the gear and the respirator all the time is the heat stress. Um, and, and so that's that's a concern of mine. Yes, yeah. we have to do stuff once in a while because I think there's the other part of this. I think there's a, a psychological element to wearing the gear. And this is where, you know, you know Doc, who's put some gear on a little bit, yeah. knows just enough to understand that that stuff gets uncomfortable. Even when it's just 85 degrees of ambient heat before you go into a structure fire where it's a couple hundred degrees plus, it's uncomfortable. So there's a psychological element of if you're not comfortable being uncomfortable, mm-hmm. all of a sudden your respiration rate goes up. Now you're sucking down more air out of the cylinder than you need to do the job. And where minutes can count in terms of air utilization, yeah, that's your lifeline. Yeah, We got to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Yes. I don't know how to explain it. We have to be, you know, the stress yes. response, we have to be able to control that. Yeah. And so if you don't train in gear to some extent... I, I think that could be an issue. Maybe for firefighters who've been out, yeah. you know, on the job for 20 years, it's probably not a thing when they get hot. But, you know, I did just enough to know that, you know, this was in Wisconsin, so it didn't happen that often, <laughs> right? It felt yeah. good in winter to have the yeah. full, have full turnout <laughs> on. But, but I think there's a balance there, yes, right? Of course, there, of there, there's a balance. And so I think the moral of the story is we need to increase the size of our engine our aerobic capacity, mm-hmm. because we know there's going to be a subsequent negative impact. And the higher we can get that up, the better. There, there, Berlin, I'll share this. There's been research on it. I think this was by Taylor's group. They demonstrated that just walking in turnout gear, yeah. 50 pounds, right? But you got these boots that are probably 10 pounds each, yeah. and it's on the end of your, you know, on the end of a limb segments, that's the most inefficient yes. place that weight could be is further away from the center of mass or the fulcrum is longer technically. That walking and turnout gear increases your energy expenditure by about 47%, just walking Oof. on the fireground. 
is 47% harder than it would be if you had your tennis shoes on. Yeah. And then you're going to take 20% off the top. The little bit that we have left in the middle is our residual. And that's what we have to work with safely and effectively. So to increase the residual, we can't do anything about the mass of the gear, but we got to increase our aerobic capacity. Yeah, absolutely. That's just one fitness attribute that's critical to performance and ultimately firefighter safety. Absolutely. And so I'm going to lean on that a little bit further since uh, aerobic capacity is where you left off at. And there's all different types of ways to increase aerobic capacity, VO2 max, and so so, so on and so forth. Uh, But in the research that you've done specifically with firefighters, what are the recommended programs, if you will, or training regimens to increase aerobic capacity to help us, again, reduce the, the factors of those boots that are way too big for us, that are uncomfortable, to, to reduce that 15% of having that respirator on? And then I'll, I want to ask a little bit more about um, that stress response, because as you know, being comfortable or being uncomfortable in your gear only adds to it, right? It's, just, it's like you grab two people, you know, same gear, same environment, same drill. One is experienced, one's not. One is going to be spending a lot more air because of the the, the newness, if you will, of Mm -hmm. not understanding the gear. And so there's there's so much there, but uh, I want to start with the aerobic capacity. What are the methods that are recommended for firefighters uh, from the research that you've done with firefighters? Well, that that's a great question, and I I think there's a lot more questions and answers with a lot of these. I'd yeah. be interested to get Manny's yeah. take on on this, frankly. Yeah, please, um, please. You know, but I, you know, when we look at Berlin, you know, it's it's like we try not to reinvent the wheel. Although we're talking about you know tactical strength and conditioning with you know a firefighter population in this case, we've been working with coaches have been working with athletes at elite levels, you know, for hundreds of hundred years. Right. Yeah. And so we don't have to reinvent the wheel, but we do know that getting the heart rate up, you know, into zones three and four are going to be important. So doing more of the repetition, yes, you could do long, slow distance, right. But, and that's been traditionally what's recommended is kind of the steady state stuff at 70% of your max heart rate or VO2 max. But we know that you actually get more bang for your buck if you can kind of do some repetition or interval work, just meaning Mm -hmm. that we might be running for 20 seconds on and then, you know, having about a minute or two recovery and then going hard, you know, so getting at higher levels of intensity um, certainly uh, gives us more bang for our buck. You can actually get probably more benefit from it in terms of aerobic and anaerobic capacity um, in a much shorter period of time. I mean, we've done work more with the law enforcement side in academies using like the 3015 intermittent fitness test. And that leads us to a shuttle run program. So through shuttle run programming where you're go stop, go stop, but at higher intensities, you can get, we've demonstrated just as good of fitness outcomes from that compared to the traditional, more long, slow distance stuff in a fraction of the time at a much lower training volume. So the risk of muscle skeletal injuries that typically occur from more of a militaristic kind of long, slow distance, you know, mm-hmm. style training, there's less injuries from it. And and the Aussies have, have been doing this stuff um, for, for wow. probably 10, 15 years yeah. in their law enforcement academies and stuff. Yeah. And so I think a lot of that stuff is, you know, that came from soccer and yeah. rugby, yeah. Um, type stuff. We don't need to reinvent the wheel, but we need to keep in mind what we can do and where we can do it, especially if it's on duty. And that leads us to a whole nother conversation of 
what is safe to do on duty when you can get a call and, yeah. and what we should maybe wait for off duty. Okay. Well, let, can I lean on that then? Um, because we, there's lots of schools of thought out there, right? It's like, you know, should we conserve and actually Manny, uh, I'm pretty sure in, on his, uh, when he came on the show, talked about that exact thing about, you know, do we go all out with our workouts when we're sitting there on duty, when you can literally have a fire or something the same moments during or right after your workout, or should that be saved? Maybe not necessarily even after the first day you're off, maybe the second day that you're off. But so I guess, uh, according to your, you know, your opinion and your research, uh, what types of workouts are recommended on duty when we could be maxing out ourselves at any given moment? Uh, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And Manny and I have had this, this conversation a, a couple of times and, and stuff. Um, but, you know, so for probably about 10 years, we've, we've looked at the impact of different on different types of on-duty exercise on the impact of subsequent occupational performance, meaning you work out on duty, you get a call 10 minutes later, you're on the fire ground. Can you do your job? And ultimately, can you do it safely? That's the right. next question to, to answer. But in terms of that, so we've looked at endurance exercise, circuit training, heavy resistance training. All three of those modalities have about the same impact and, and the weight ones have a little bit greater negative impact than endurance. Endurance doesn't tend, assuming these are individuals that do some endurance exercise regularly, yeah. they're going to be, if you do a 30 minutes at a steady state, submaximal intensity, there's going to be minimal impact if you get a call on your ability to do your job. That's safe to do. Yeah. When you look at circuit and heavy resistance training, both of those negatively impact time of completion. So if a firefighter's work rate goes down, they can't work quite as quickly by about eight to 10% following mm -hmm. heavy and circuit training type modalities. Now, we recently did a study, Ryan Mason, one of my former uh, PhD students, looked at high intensity resistance training, uh -huh. okay? Um, you see this modality used across the country by firefighters. You see it commercially utilized all the time. Okay. I won't name any names uh, of it, but I think you know what I'm talking about. Yes, I do. <laughs> and high in, so high intensity resistance training, when we, when we think about what you mentioned, specificity to their job, yep. boy, it, it's, it's one of the, you know, top of my list in terms of how they should be training, mm -hmm. but probably off duty. Right. So, but we wanted to look at what, what effect does it have on occupational performance? So compared to circuit and heavy resistance training, remember about a 10% increase in time of completion of occupational tasks following 10 minutes, following um, high intensity resistance training, 44% uh, increase in uh, yes. completion. Yes. And furthermore, we actually measured air consumption 10 minutes following a 28% increase in air consumption from the cylinder to complete the same set of occupational tasks. It took them a quarter more of the cylinder or a quarter more air compared to their non-fatigued wow. baseline. Wow. And if you combine air consumption and their work rate, we've we've uh, just validated recently, uh, Dr. Emily Langford, one of my former PhD students, just uh, validated a work efficiency metric that combines those two factors of air consumption and mm -hmm. work rate. And work efficiency down is worse. It got, it went about, it was reduced by 40% 10 40%. minutes after. So you get slower, you consume more air and your efficiency is 40% less. 40%. That's a huge number. That's a huge number. Huge number. Now yeah. we'll say like, 
that's worst case scenario, right? Yes. And there's yeah. probably firefighters out there saying, uh, well, what are the odds of that happening? Well, you know what? It happens more than you think. And we've yeah. been training a local fire department and they're getting pulled out like, you know, a couple of times a month while we're training. I'm like, boy, yeah. is this is this bad? Are we doing? Yeah. So we looked at what's the time course of recovery mm-hmm. following high intensity resistance training. We, we brought them back another day, did the same exact workout. Mm-hmm. Okay. One hour later now, hour maybe later, you're okay. recovered. It turns out that half of the firefighters were recovered. They were back to baseline in terms of terms of they had a similar time of completion. Their work rate was back to normal. But the other half were still significantly slower. Sure. Sure. So, you know, um Wow, that's we that, sorry, yeah. I was gonna say that's still pretty uh that's pretty um because uh, I, if you put me in that category after an hour, I'm not back to my baseline yet. You might need to give me, you know, six hours. <laughs> but, uh, well, but that, right. that, yeah, that that's 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 impressive, but also um, eye opening as well. Um, because I've certainly done high intensity workouts on shift where we did get a call in the middle of or even within an hour. Yes, was there times where it was twelve hours later? Absolutely. So, uh, but even to that extent, is you know six hours later, it'd be like how I equate this, you know, you play two hours of basketball, right? High intensity basketball, like we, the, the NBA, for example, they don't do double headers because they're all out, you know? So they, they do play back to back in terms of the next day. But point being is they have 24 hours of recovery or 20 hours, if you will, if it's a afternoon game versus a night game. But yes, I mean, that's, that's still pretty impressive that you got some firefighters that are in, in good enough shape to be back to baseline ish after one hour. That's, that's, that's pretty good. It, it is. It is impressive. And it just goes to show you um, how well the body adapts to yeah. whatever stress you apply on a fairly regular basis. Right. And stuff. Yeah. And in and Berlin, if I could add one more thing Please. to this, just to put this whole yes. piece into context, because um, the first study we did, which was the circuit training study, it was Katie Dennison, um, who's a firefighter now and stuff. Um, one of my first grad students, you know, this was, we were training him and we're like, boy, is this bad? But they did the circuit training. So those firefighters that slowed down in the circuit training study by 10%, 10 minutes post-exercise, okay? We're like, okay, they got slower, but they were all, all 12 of them in that study were moderately trained in terms of their fitness status, okay? And they were all able to complete the task, just took them on average 10% longer to do so. Yes. To put that into context, because there are firefighters out there that will say, see, that's why I'm not working out on duty. And that is so just to 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 put yes. this in context, we yes. took another group of 36 sedentary firefighters that were not regularly training with us, like those 12 that got 10% slower. Yes. Put those 30, we didn't make them work out, right? Because they don't work out normally. We just said, can you just go through the simulated fireground test so we can get a time? Six of the 36 could not complete all of the tasks. Hmm. They stepped out before yeah. they finished. The remaining 30 that did finish it, we compared their times to the more fit but fatigued post-exercise times. And those those 12 firefighters that although they got 10% slower, that slower time was still faster on average than 70% of the Hmm. sedentary firefighters that were not fatigued at all. 
Interesting. So, so, you know, that the firefighters that want to say, that's why I'm not exercising on duty. Well, they're probably not the ones that are exercising off duty on their own either. Yes, and if they're right. not doing that, yes. then this is the situation we're in. Yes. And then, you know, who's the, uh, you know, I hate to call it this way, but then where's the liability? Who's the liability? We, yeah. we should be our brother's keeper and we want to be responsible for ourselves so we can help somebody else, but Absolutely. we don't want to be that other person. Absolutely. Right? Uh, Manny? Actually, I think that's probably a good segue into maybe more of the conversation of fitness standards. Let's jump into that. So, doctor, um, so as far as because you work with uh, how many fire departments do you, you work with your local one? Yes. And then do you, do you work with just, you know, a numerous different agencies and in, in terms of your research or? Yeah, um, it's a moving target, Berlin. Yeah. I yeah. do work closely with my local fire department, and and yeah. there's been a couple of that we've worked with over the years and stuff. But it just depends on the research project. But I've yeah. probably, you know, we're probably working now at least remotely and in person with um, I don't know ten or twelve uh, okay. departments and stuff. Yeah. But yeah. I'm not hands on, you know, on all sure. those departments and stuff. Yeah. Um, so. So, yeah. So with what Manny is uh, referring to, so can you talk a little bit to current fitness standards, we'll say that are out there in terms of what they were, maybe when you might've been starting to work with one of the agencies, did, 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 did things change? Were you able to recommend certain things or what, what are you noticing on the fitness side of things in terms of firefighter fitness standards? Well, that it is the can of worms, as as it you is. know, um, and stuff. Um, in in my opinion, and this may not be of the popular opinion, but my opinion is that fitness standards are necessary mm -hmm. um, for every department. If in the interest of firefighters' safety, as we were just talking about, and that is a great segue, Manny. Um, I would, you know, I would the, second that as well. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I mean, um, you know, and that's really the way that it should be looked at from a leadership perspective is safety. Um, I understand that there can be concerns in working with the union um, on that. Um, I feel like if the union has the best interests of their employees that they represent um, at heart, then they should support it. And some do, mm -hmm. and some are, are very supportive of it. But so I understand that there are kind of political um, aspects of, yep. of this, uh, uh, you know, kind of idea, but, um, I, I, I just think that for the safety of firefighters, it's important for all of them to have them. And unfortunately very few do yes. for a number of these reasons. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I, I don't think they necessarily have to be punitive, but, you know, at the end of the day, if, if it, if it doesn't have some form of, of, you know, accountability, Sure. Um, then I think people just work the system around. They're like, well, I'll just do it, you know, but do you, do you prepare for it? You yeah. know? Yeah. And so I, I think, I think it is important to have that. And, you know, as a department from a leadership perspective, if you're going to implement it and it's going to have some teeth, you need to support the firefighters. Your goal is to have 100% of pers line personnel be able to meet that minimum standard. This mm -hmm. isn't like, here's the optimal ideal firefighter. Mm -hmm. You know, I want all firefighters looking like outside linebackers, yeah. Yeah. you know, no, it, this is the minimal acceptable standard that we're trying to achieve yeah. to safely and effectively perform the job, but we're going to support that with 
a, a fitness or strength and conditioning program with an, yeah. a comprehensive wellness program. Yeah. Um, and of course, those things involve resources from the physical ability testing or fitness testing standard development to having a wellness and strength and conditioning program. Those things do, you know, they're resources that do have a cost associated with them. Yeah. But I think, you know, part of the work we're trying to do right now, as we were talking briefly about earlier, is can we demonstrate a return on investment? And if you, in terms of implementing wellness programs, and um, I'm not sure if AZ talked a little bit about she that did. on hers, but, she did but a little bit. you know, she does a good job, I think, of of kind of promoting that and, yeah. and rightfully so. You know, there's not a ton of data out there right now demonstrating return on investment, whether it's having, you know, healthcare practitioners to address injuries, whether it's having strength and conditioning coaches there in terms of programming to to, to prevent injuries yeah. and promote readiness and safety. Um you know, the certain departments will will kind of release their return on investment data. And if you look at that, it's yeah. very positive yeah, for every absolutely. department. Yeah. Um, and a little bit of the research out there has demonstrated um, a, a positive return on investment. And we're conducting research right now um, trying to do that as well, because I think that is um, that's support that yeah. People can take to their executive leadership within the department and the mayor's office and risk management and show them, look, here's the ROI that we can bring if we pay for a strength and conditioning practitioner, if we pay the salary of an athletic trainer to have on staff. Yeah. Um, You know, you can be saving tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars a year by investing a little bit proactively. Yeah. Um, and AZ, AZ did talk about this. She talked about, and I love the term that she used. She talked about the people being the, uh, the appreciating assets in the organization versus your equipment or depreciating assets. So if you're going to invest in a million dollar piece of apparatus, you should be investing in your people as well. Cause those are appreciating unless you don't. And then there are, there are people are also depreciating assets as well. Um, what, what, what would you, uh, and this is just more just a, a thought process, but you know, current, We'll say uh, entrance, if you will, entrance uh, modalities in, you know, CPAT exams, if you will, to get into the fire service or even, you know, uh, ongoing types of call it annual fitness standards. They include things like, you know, a minimum number of push-ups or pull-ups or sit-ups. And going back to the specificity, you know, principle is like, you know, when I go to a fire ground, I'm not doing, you know, 46 push-ups. You know, I'm not going to be go to sit-ups on the sidelines, right? Obviously, core strength, upper body strength, things like that are are obviously uh, ne- necessary, but but not necessarily specified or specific to our profession. So, are there uh, certain things? So, like for example, say you had a strength and conditioning coach that an organization hired to come in to be a part of the fitness program. What types of movements and or types of works. I know obviously this is a little redundant. We talk about, you know, increasing VO2 max or over capacity. Mm-hmm. I, there's obviously going to be some mobility training and stuff in there, but what are some smaller, you know, type scale types of stuff that we should be focusing on outside yes. of, outside of full on strength and conditioning programs for the, for the elite athlete, if you will. Okay. So from a training perspective, exercises you're looking for and stuff. Uh, okay. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you. Specificity kind of principle suggests that we have to move in similar patterns and similar ways that we do on the fire ground. In this case, we need to stimulate similar energy systems yes. as we do there. And, you know, we talked about the, the aerobic energy system being important, but, you know, all three, the phosphagen kind of the high intensity, short duration, the weight room type stuff. So we think about strength and power development, that energy system is critical because, you know, here's the other point to, you know, you're talking about, well, firefighters not doing pushups and sit-ups and stuff. You're right. They're not. What they are doing is unlike that, they are working against an absolute workload and external resistance, whether that's a victim in a fire that they have to rescue. It doesn't care that I'm 150 pounds soaking wet or I'm 220 pounds, Right. The absolute strength that that person has gives them an advantage. So having more muscle mass, doing resistance training workout to increase hypertrophy and muscle mass and lifting a little bit heavier to induce neurological adaptations that produce more strength, right? That comes in handy when I have to drag that and stuff. So you, you jogged my memory as you were talking kind of about the pushups and stuff. And, and that is problem. That's one that's one thing that's problematic in doing body mass dependent kind of fitness mm-hmm. testing, like pushups. Is, I get it. I get why we do it. And muscle endurance is important. But very few things, when you look at what are tasks that a firefighter performs, are just with their body weight. No, it's 50 pounds on top of their body weight, which puts the smaller statured firefighter inherently at a disadvantage, assuming body composition profiles are similar between bigger and smaller firefighters, same percent fat. They're going to have less muscle mass. Mm -hmm. They have to be stronger to compensate or they're going to be working X amount harder to perform the same tasks at the same work rate as the larger firefighter and stuff. So that that informs us not only on how we should test. And by the way, I'm not real crazy about the, the fitness testing part of it as I am about no, let's test them in, in tasks that they actually perform, yeah, exactly. similar to the CPAT does, right? Right. right I think right. that's a good example of it. And so for incumbents, we can't use the CPAT, but we can create our own our own yeah. tests and so forth. Yeah. But from a training perspective, you know, um, really different firefighters have to kind of be aware of their strengths and their deficiencies based on their fitness status, right? Mm-hmm. Of, of those energy systems and those fitness attributes, strength, power, endurance, anaerobic endurance, aerobic endurance, um, and, um, and utilize, you know, uh, yeah. similar movement patterns and stuff. Yeah. So yeah, that gets, it gets pretty deep in the weeds that Manny it could, does. you know, walk you through in terms of a comprehensive training program and what's appropriate for one firefighter, yeah. you know, really isn't necessarily appropriate for another based on their training status and based on where their deficiencies are, where, mm-hmm. you know, if you can identify deficiencies, you can get the most bank, just like training an athlete. We try to identify where their weaknesses are and we yeah. try to focus on those because we get the most bang for our buck. Yeah especially yeah. more highly trained they become. Do we want to yeah. squeeze another 2% off on their st- increase 2% on their strength if they're already strong? Yeah. But if aerobic capacity is important and they're deficient there, well, let's maybe target that a little bit more and stuff. But, yeah. you know, that takes personnel, that takes expertise. Yeah. Um, and the fire service is starting to move there yeah. in select departments around the country. But we need we have a long way to go yeah. um, to move the needle on the fire service. And that's and that's what we're talking just we're really focusing on career, right? Mm-hmm. That's okay. Career is what 35% of 1.1 million firefighters. 
the volunteer is like 70%. Mm-hmm. What are we doing for them? Agreed. I'm going to go back a little bit because I I, I don't want to miss it. And I uh, just don't, don't want to miss this because you talked about arterial stiffness a lot earlier on. You talked about fitness versus fatness. And I, I can assume what those mean. Uh, but for the listeners and just for clarification, can you, uh, I, I, we were talking about cardiovascular disease, heart disease, heart attacks, and, uh, you know, the, the risk factors in terms of firefighters, we're not even talking about, you know, the lack of sleep, you know, sleep deprivation. We're not, you know, we haven't even talked about any of that yet, but when we talk about arterial stiffness, fitness versus fatness, can you define a little bit, if you will, about what you mean by fitness versus fatness? And then uh, uh, obviously the increased risk of heart attacks to keep it plain and simple. Yeah. Um, this was a study that we had probably done about 10 or 12 years ago. Um, but essentially we, we looked at, uh, measured arterial stiffness as our outcome measure again, predictor of cardiovascular disease. We measured their body composition. I believe if memory serves, we did a DEXA scan, which is one of the kind of gold standards, Mm. um, in terms of body composition assessment. Um, and then we did an aerobic capacity test on a treadmill in full PPE, except they didn't have the respirator on. So they had the mass of the gear, but we had to connect our, um, our metabolic cart oh, right. to their, to their mouth. And we couldn't unfortunately connect the respirator to the cart, which that's another goal of mine in, in this lifetime yeah. Yeah. To, to, to work with those companies. But, but anyway, so we didn't have the positive, the effects of the respirator. We did have the effects of the mass on them. And so we, we just, we measured their aerobic capacity. We measured their body composition. And then we looked at how well they predict arterial stiffness. And it turned out that the fatness trumped fitness, you know, and so those firefighters that were fairly fit, but you know what, they had a little external uh, load carriage in terms of, of uh, fat mass that had a bigger impact in terms of the strength of its relationship with arterial stiffness than their aerobic fitness did. You know, we think that if we're aerobically fit, "Ah, I can carry some extra weight that'll overcome it. Well, in this case, for this risk factor of cardiovascular disease, no, fatness was a bigger predictor. Now you might look at hypertension. You might look at, you know, HDL, LDL, cholesterol, triglycerides, and you might see a little bit of a different picture, which eat with each of those, but with this risk factor, yes. um, it, it was fatness that was the bigger contributor. So um, when you're saying fatness, you're talking specifically body fat percentage. Yeah. And, and okay. I don't remember if we looked at absolute mass offhand, yeah. um, yeah. if it was just absolute fat mass and yeah. pounds of how much fat you have yeah. versus yeah. percent fat, I'd have to go back to, to look yeah. at okay. that, but, okay. um, yeah, but, but being, but being lack of fit, Basically, to sum it up, lack of being fit, it plays a lesser role than a higher percentage of body fat. fat. Yeah, in terms of cardiovascular disease, heart disease. So obviously, be fit, have less body fat, obviously. But in terms of relation to both, that's what I wanted to kind of declare clear. Arterial stiffness. Are you talking more like in terms of uh, the uh, the elementary definition of that? You're talking about literally the. The, the like the thickening of the arterial walls. You're talking about actual like atherosclerotic sclerosis and yep. leading to heart attacks, and that's what we're talking it, about. Okay. Yep, atherosclerotic okay. plaques, etc. Exactly, okay. exactly. Yeah, um, awesome. yeah. So essentially, the less compliant, the more stiff they are, yes. yeah. um, that impacts the stiffness yeah. and yeah. the the way that we measure it with a pulse wave velocity. It, it yeah. Im- impacts the velocity of the pulse wave that we send into it, so we can estimate the stiffness yes. of it. 
Well, let me say one thing about please. that, Berlin. Yeah, you yes, know, we're talking about these risk factors and, and, and the, you know, and yes, physical fitness or aerobic capacity is important. And I will say that, you know, there's been research again in other populations, but there was a study done in tens of thousands of physicians from a couple decades ago. And what they found, they looked at the relationship of, of having a heart attack, a sudden cardiac event during or within 30 minutes following um, vigorous physical exertion. So they looked at it as exercise, okay, because this was in physicians. And they, they followed them for years, right? And they looked at it, but they told, they asked them, how many times do you perform vigorous exercise per week? And sure enough, what they found is that the physicians that performed vigorous exercise more often had a much lower risk of having a sudden cardiac event during vigorous exercise mm -hmm. compared to those who were um, doing it like they were sedentary. They weren't yeah. performing it. Yeah. Very, so the bottom line is the more often we perform, and this sounds like, yeah, duh, but mm -hmm. there's data right there to support it. <laughs> In yeah. thousands of individuals that the more frequently we perform vigorous exercise, the, le the lower the risk you have of sudden cardiac event at the fire ground or coming back from the fire ground. Yeah. And again, with, you know, occupational cancer, sudden cardiac events is the number one cause of on duty death. Yeah. And so this is happening all the time, but we need to expose, we need to expose firefighters to vigorous exertion Big, yep, on a regular on a regular basis but let yeah. me just say that obviously progression is important yeah, getting a doctor's clearance before we start throwing them into this and so yes. that's the other part physical exams stress tests yes. annual stress tests are part of you know the WFI and the, the NFPA's recommendations we need to try to catch this stuff clinically right yes. and we're not but but you know from a, a exercise perspective a um a um, uh, a programming perspective, we want to start introducing exercise at lower levels, increase our frequency, then increase the intensity over a period of time. But we do want clearance to be able to do that safely in asymptomatic yeah. individuals. Yes. Um, so get checked out first. Yeah, Again, absolutely. it should be part of your annual screening that yeah. your department does. Yes. Um, but not all departments, you know, do that. And again, yeah. we have career and then we have differences in volunteer. We need yeah. more resources for volunteer to be doing this stuff. Yeah. But it's amazing the strength of that relationship on how much lower your risk is if you just can do some vigorous exercise a couple times a week. I have a a quick question on that progression because I love I love that real quick. So the progression piece is huge. A question I have is you take two individuals, one individual that is inherently strong, right? Say, and I'm just gonna throw a, number, a low percentage of body fat, enormous amounts of strength, good aerobic capacity, works out and just doesn't have a progression, if you will. It's, 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 it's mundane. It's three to four days a week, same types of workouts, you know, but, but pushing a lot of weight, very cardiovascular fit, cardiovascular fit, if you will. Another individual, not as you know, say an increased amount of body fat, we'll say, you know, that doesn't have the, 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 the same amount of aerobic capacity, VO2 max, less cardiovascular fit, but is on a regimen that is progress progressing slow, but progressing which individual is at higher risk? Meaning you got this individual over here that is progressing day by day, week by week, and it has been for say the last 18 months, say three years. The other individual is was a collegiate athlete, inherently strong, is always fit, quote unquote, right? But doesn't have a program that's progressing. Is that individual right there at higher risk because it's not a progressive regimen? 
are you um sorry let me just clarify cardiovascular disease risk or yeah, sorry cardiovascular specifically i mean you know i think um Frankly, both of those scenarios, I would take any day of the week and twice yes. on Sunday. And Absolutely. I think Manny probably would because that's a great <laughs> that's a great problem to have. Yes, it is. Um, you know, and I, you know, it, it's hard to say without yeah. knowing, you know, their yeah. genetics, There's their family history, first. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so with that, you all know, things, but all things considered ahead. and all things being the same, right? So we'll I guess we'll just go with that. Yeah. Absolutely. So, okay. Uh, yeah. But case. both of them are, you know, let's, let's put it this way, Berlin, the, the recommendations by the world health organization um, in terms of physical activity, uh, frequency and intensity to derive health benefits like a, a lower, you know, uh, cardiovascular disease risk is 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity per week and strength train strength training twice per week. So, you know, you kind of do the math on that. And if you can get out, you know, three times for, you know, 50 minutes, a 50 minute, you know, walk slash run, you're doing pretty good. good. Um, You you get the dog out and you walk seven days a week, you know, at, at, you know, 30 minutes or whatever. And, and you're, you're above that as well. And your dog loves you for it. There you go. Um, (laughs) You know, so, so, so it doesn't, you know, again, the intensity is important, but it's the, if you look at the, the literature, you know, in, in globally, all of it kind of together, it's energy expenditure. If we expend enough energy, that's associated with a lower risk of metabolic, cardiovascular and respiratory uh, types of, of diseases mm-hmm. and stuff. Yes. So and it keeps our, our body composition you know, in check a little bit more. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I chime in there that I think it's really just the consistency, consistency piece. Yes. That segues into lifestyle. Right. So um, that's probably the bigger component of it all. Yeah. It, being I consistent in and simplest terms. I mean, have it be a part of your life and not just at work. Got to work out because I'm at work, but if it's a part of your life and your daily, you know, five days, you whatever, three, five days a week and you're doing it off to you. Cause let's, let's face it. You know, if you're only focused on it, nine days a month, like firefighters work, that's not the majority of the time, right? I remember back in the ACSM days, you know, it was always, and I'm sure all the texts, so it's like you, your working out days should be more often than not, right? If you're only working out two days a week, well, there's five days a week that you're not. If you're right. working out or doing some <laughs> kind of movement, physical activity, four days a week, that means three of the days you're not. So you're always kind of ahead more than you are behind. But, but Berlin, I think the message that we need to have, you know, we're talking about like, this is optimal, right? Yes. Again, a little bit of physical activity and it doesn't have to be exercise. That's raking. That's pushing your mower. Physical activity is any movement. A little bit derives a lot of health benefits, especially if you're kind of on the lower end of the activity spectrum, just a small improvement of one or two days a week, getting the dog out, lifting some weights, you know, a little bit, um, that, goes a long way in terms of health benefits. I think one of the things that scares, you know, some some folks away, and this is general population as well as firefighters, is they think they have to be in the weight room and, and, and crushing it five days a week because they see the one dude that the biggest biceps that's yeah. always in there crushing yeah. it. Yeah. Well, you know what, though, from a health perspective, you don't have to crush it to that extent. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and a little bit can move the needle in terms of uh, all these risk factors for, for different chronic diseases. So a little bit's important, a little bit more is even better, but you know, if that's going to push someone away and intimidate them because we're telling them to do something five or seven days a week, then, you know, you don't need to be there and every day doesn't need to be a hard day. It can literally be like 
get your dog out for a walk yeah. and having, you know, as what Manny's talking about, you know, here is, is having a support network, both at work through having, you know, PFTs and a strength and conditioning practitioner to help implement appropriate exercise and help yes. you help firefighters to meet their specific goals. But it's creating a culture there just as it is at home and having a supportive partner and family that helps to support you when, you know what, I got to get my 30 minute walk in. I got to get my, you know, whatever, 20 minute run in um, and to protect that time and and help take care of the kids while you get out and you go lift or something like that. It's having a support network. Um, it, It takes it takes all of us to do it on duty and off duty. Right. But like you said, lifestyle, it should be a lifestyle off duty, on duty, not just at duty. Or because your department has an annual fitness test now and it's coming up in yeah. six weeks. Yeah, exactly. Six weeks now you got to hit it hard because uh, the last 48 weeks was, you know, let's take it easy. Oh, but, uh, <laughs> sorry. And, and that's probably when the injuries start to to creep up because everyone's right. increasing the volume yep. of training by yep. Yep. A, a, an order of magnitude more than they should be and yeah, stuff. And absolutely. so, you know. Um, yeah. All right. So the next piece here, uh, Doc, uh, strategies for training recruits and incumbents. That's the topic you wanted to talk about. Yeah, yeah, I put it down, but you know, Manny's on here. I just let him. I just let him take this one. I'll give you my take, and you can see how it's different than his. And and he's That's actually, perfect. you know, I love He's it. actually implementing this stuff. So you know, then in that case, don't listen yeah. to anything. I have to say. <laughs> no, you know, I think. Um, Again, we're not, I don't think we need to reinvent the wheel with this stuff. When we're talking about kind of global periodization or training strategies and stuff. Um, we've done this stuff with athletes. Now we're just applying it to someone with different, a different skill set, different needs. Um, but that's not any different than really training any athlete. We have to identify through a needs analysis kind of, well, do they need more strength? Do they need more endurance? And then we focus and we go. But the bottom line is firefighters need everything in terms yeah. of fitness attributes. And so we need programming that allows us or a program template that allows us to kind of target multiple fitness attributes. Mm-hmm. And, and I, you know, there's two or three that, that are really kind of, I think, prominent and, and common and have been used with athletes. It's linear periodization. Um, linear periodization is, is really good. It's oftentimes used for kind of off-season training in athletes because it helps to develop a foundation, a physiological foundation for more high intensity training to come. When you're working in an academy, well, you're getting individuals with very diverse fitness levels coming in. How do you get them all on the same page and how do you kind of develop a foundation collectively? And so it's a very slow progression in intensity, a slow, you know, kind of progression in in terms of a decrease in volume. Um, et cetera. And so I think that's good for lesser trained. That's good for lesser trained incumbents, yeah. you know? So, I mean, most incumbents honestly, um, would probably fit into that, yeah. um, or many of them would and yeah. stuff, but for, for those individuals that are more highly trained, um, you know, they're, they're working out a couple of days per week or more type thing, nonlinear periodization, nonlinear periodization is kind of like where each day it has a different focus. One day it's strength development, another day it's power, another day is aerobic, another day is anaerobic type thing. Whereas linear periodization tends to focus on one of those for a couple of weeks, then it moves on to the next one, kind of in sequences based on on intensity, low to high intensity. So endurance before strength and power. But nonlinear, it assumes you have that foundation. That's why you wouldn't do it with a beginner. And, um, but, you know, more elite level athletes, you know, American football players training for a combine, a lot of them will use like nonlinear periodization because they have already developed all these fitness attributes and they need greater variation 
less saturation on any single attribute. Whereas untrained individuals need more focus or saturation on a given fitness attribute before they move to the next one. So less variation, more saturation for linear, just the opposite for nonlinear. So, you know, we, we could, you know, whatever, go off talking yeah. on block periodization and, and things yeah. like that. But I, I think those are just some kind of um, basic yeah. tenets of different training strategies. But it comes back to, for firefighters, it, come back, it comes back primarily to their training status and what's more appropriate for them. Because with athletes, we would also look at, well, what season, what part of the annual yeah. cycle are you in? Off-season, in-season. Firefighters, yeah, we don't, we don't when is competition? Yeah. Every day. When the, it's when the tone goes less. off. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there's no off season, right? It's, uh, it's, right. it's always in season. Oh. Yeah, exactly. And and that's where we could get deeper into the weeds and why nonlinear is probably a little bit more appropriate. If you do yeah. have that base of, yeah. of training to utilize, because you don't ever spend too much time away from, from stimulating a given fitness mm-hmm. attribute because you could have the call and you might need the strength. Well, if exactly. I haven't done that for a month and a half, yeah, I might have lost a little bit of strength, but yeah. Berlin, let me just make this clear. You know, I could geek out all day about this is, you know, telling everyone this is the optimal training strategy. The optimal strategy is whatever we can do to get the majority of that. fire personnel doing something. I love that. That yes. is the best. That is what will move the needle on safety on health and on readiness. Love it. You're, you're totally right. It's, uh, it's, 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 it's what I've always mentioned in the past when the new modality came into the stations or the new workouts that came in that were high intensity. Hey, check this out. It's like, well, are we motivating a new group to work out? Cause what it's doing is, is we're re-motivating the people that are already working out. Right. And so that new modality just re-intensifies what I want to do. It's like, I'm, I, I, we need to how do we bring in the group that's not currently working out or doesn't know what to do? Cause that's a group we need to engage more of. So I love how you say whatever we can get the mass to start doing. That's the, that's the ideal. I'm on the same page with you. So this, there might be many here, but I want to ask what is your uh, most dedicated research now? Like what, what, as far as firefighter research, I should say, what, uh, what, what are you doing right now? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we got a couple projects going on. Um, one of them is, Really kind of like we were just talking about, we're trying to evaluate the return on investment, again, from a fiscal kind of perspective of implementing or uh, implementing uh, healthcare practitioners directly in uh, fire departments. You know, and so if you if you pay for the salary up front of an athletic trainer or physical therapist to be at one of the stations, firefighter, you know, tweaks an ankle or strains their back, being able to go over there and get looked at on duty that day. Um can we help them out and, and get them back on the line quicker if they have direct access to care versus a traditional workers' comp system where you got to go see the GP, the GP sends you the, to the physical therapist. Three weeks later, you're getting seen for something you could have been being treated for the day of mm-hmm. um, and, and stuff. And so um, that's one of the things we're trying to look at. And again, this is all, this isn't you know, um, rocket science or anything new. We've had healthcare practitioners embedded in the military for years. They've been in athletic programs for, for decades and stuff. And, and so it's just applying kind of a a piece of an overall health and wellness model 
to the fire service. And yes. I think you'll see more. We'll see what we find, you know, but yes. but the preliminary data from organiz- from agencies and departments that do have an A-tier PT, they've demonstrated return on investment. And so, you know, we think that that's probably the direction that that this will go, but we'll see what the data yeah. uh, suggests. And so, so I mean, yeah, I mean, because yeah. with Manny, it's Seattle Fire Department, his uh, health, wellness and fitness coordinator is, and I, I'm just assuming I could be wrong, bigger departments are able to fund that uh, more reasonably or accurately or immediately, if you will, while smaller departments can't. Um, I'm curious. So you, since doing this research, have you recently found recently, I don't know how long you've been doing this specific research. Um, have you found that now agencies are implementing or they already had it, if that makes sense. Yeah, like- yeah we're too soon to tell. We're, okay. we're basically at the end of year one of a three-year oh. investigation okay. and, and, and looking at some multiple years of data from multiple departments. But the methodology that we used is to select um, a couple of departments from coast to coast that oh. already have an embedded healthcare practitioner. And we're comparing their essentially injury and worker comp uh, yeah. data to um, a traditional workers comp, I guess, um, uh, a department. And so it'll be a descriptive comparison between the two, um, and, and stuff. So, but we're, you know, we're going to, we're going to kind of dig deep, deeper into it, Berlin, and we're going to be asking stakeholders of the, you know, the, the departments that have them embedded. Well, what was the process you went through? You know, Manny was kind of talking about this, I think, um, online as, as well with us. What's the process? What are the challenges that you went through and you had to overcome? Um, our hope is that, you know, we can provide evidence for departments that don't have it, but are considering it mm-hmm. to, to go down and, and kind of give them some ammunition to go to um, HR, risk management, mayor's office and say, here, look, look what other departments are doing. Yes. And it not only helps us with pain and suffering of the injured firefighter, um, but look at the cost that could be saving if we can return them back to duty quicker. That's less backfill personnel costs and overtime costs. It's less stress on the backfill personnel from, mm-hmm. us, you know, just having to work more ships, sleep deprivation, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and then ultimately, you know, indirect and direct costs associated with those injuries. If we can get them back sooner, yeah. um, it might be worth some money on the front end to try Absolutely. to support this system. Uh, so I have a rhetorical question, which every episode I have a rhetorical question, but we go ahead and answer the rhetorical question, which means it's not a rhetorical question. <laughs> I, I I think I believe I understand uh, what the research will find. I mean, the research will find that there is a mass benefit in having a healthcare professional on on site, if you will, right? Because of all the reasons that you said. So with all the research that you're doing with all the different agencies, like you said, from coast to coast, your research will more or less, the, the hypothesis will prove true. Is uh, am I wrong? Well, that's uh, yeah. That well, that's our hypothesis that it will show a return or demonstrate a return on investment. And um, yeah, I think you know, I think that will speak to multiple stakeholders within a given department or agency. Um, you know, whether it's the personal yeah. suffering side, because I don't, you know, that is important, but also you know the the, the objective data, the risk, the return on investment stuff, the direct yes. and indirect costs, yes. and unfortunately money talks a lot of times in, you know, and, uh, you know, a city's. Yes. Uh, yeah. in their budget. budget. Right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Right. Um, yeah. where do we find your research? Right. Like, uh, so you've been doing this research, like uh, firefighters, right. We read all the time, you know, but we don't 
get to see this research, not not because we don't want to, but we don't know how to access some of this stuff. So like, for example, your research and other researchers out there that are studying firefighters and stuff like wellness and other, how do we find this stuff? That's, that's how about Dr. Great... Abel's specifically. PubMed. There you go. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. You can go on PubMed, but yeah. this brings up a, a number of, of different factors. And this is one of the issues that we have. And this is the the challenge is the disconnect between the research and the department and implementing evidence-based practices that have been evaluated and have empirical data to support or not support mm -hmm. what you're doing or not doing, right? And so to, to provide support for best practices. And, and so I think that that's an issue. And, you know, I think there's conferences and stuff that the NSCA's tactical strength and conditioning, well, now it's the, the tactical annual training, it is an annual thing, but you know how many people can can go to that? And now you can go online. There is that element of it, yeah, yeah. And, and and Manny can support these things. But you know, I Az since you had her on a shameless plug, you know she's going to have um, she's going to have a uh, kind of a live uh, sixty right. minute kind of workshop coming up here. I think it's on November sixth um, yeah. with seven researchers and seven minutes each. But this way, it's like a, I believe it's a free event, um, you know, so in, it's a mechanism right? to try to get the information out to um, the practitioners, to the departments, to the administration, et yeah. cetera. But like that, we need more of that. Yes, we do. That Doc, makes the information accessible. Yes. Since you mentioned AZ, I think I'd also point out that another thing she does really well on is uh, having a newsletter that anybody can uh, just subscribe to. Whether it's a weekly or monthly or bi-weekly basis, she's sending out some of the types of information that yeah. might have embedded links to find specific uh, podcasts, research articles, exactly. or um, just any type of discussion around some of the things she's trying to promote yeah. uh, that we're kind of talking about today. Uh, so that's yeah. another avenue. Um, Absolutely. I mean, because if someone's going to do research with firefighters and fire departments, especially all across the country – we need firefighters and fire departments to read the research, right? I mean, whether it be uh, newsletters, whether it be a quarterly training, hey, this is what's coming out of the research out of University of Kentucky or other. And it could be, it could start with casual reads, right? Nothing mandatory, but casual reads to find out what's out there. What are people studying? Because as you know, in the fire service, change is the only thing consistent. Um, but also we, 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 we don't like change, but we also hate the way things are too. But, you know, if we just start reading stuff, we start embedding our, you know, our, our, our literature with what's out there and what's progressing. That's the only way we could change. Well, I'll also add in there, Berlin, that uh, with firefighters, uh, you know, uh, re reading research and getting access to research, I think they should, at least fire departments should also have an embedded subject matter expert <laughs> to help kind of digest some of that research and also... True be a sounding board for what it is that they came across and to talk through some of the things that they're uh, finding. Yeah. Uh, and I only point that out because um, things can get pretty creative around the kitchen table. Yes, they can. Yes, they can. That's right? why we focus so, it simply on leadership here today. <laughs> so having a, yeah. And having a subject matter extra, I think being part of that uh, will be uh, fruitful. Yeah. And I love that seven minute thing that, uh, that AZ is doing next. Uh, yeah. Next month. It's, uh, are you are you on there, Doctor? I can't I can't remember her lineup. You're on there. Yes, I, of course you are. Why, uh, I'll edit that out. Of course you are. Um, yeah, seven minutes, and maybe it's, it's stuff Please like don't. that, right? And because it's it's all it's all it's a free webinar for information, and that's the key thing. Yeah. It's it's free information from research from different perspectives, not one perspective, but many 
that people can tune in and just learn a little bit. And I think that's what's key. Yeah. Well, and, and, and to, you know, and podcasts just like this, I think, you know, those are ways that, but, but I love, I love what Manny just said. And I had that jotted down as a note on here, you know, this is a leadership uh, podcast and stuff, but I think, you know, when we think about the interaction of, of research or a department, you know, kind of working, well, do we want to implement this and stuff? I wouldn't necessarily expect them, you know, firefighters to have to dig through the piles of research and, 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 and so forth. But like Manny said, I love that having a subject matter expert involved that can help them interpret stuff, walk them through that. And here's the other part of this, Berlin, you know, you, you might not believe it, but although I was a firefighter, sometimes my ideas of what we can be doing to help the fire service aren't really practical um sure. and and um feasible <laughs> and so it 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 I takes that as well. yeah <laughs> our fighters have the best ideas right we do well yeah so it goes Absolutely. it goes both ways but um you know the ideas are only good if if they can be implemented exactly. in an effective manner and stuff and and so it takes a working relationship yes. um and and so you know that's one of the the things i love locally about our our fire department here in Lexington fire department is i have a chief that is very supportive of the engagement uh of engaging in research with an institution and it's something i think um that that he's i know he's very supportive of and yeah. and deeply believes in, you know, yes. that's, I think how, from a research perspective, how we can move the needle on some of these problems is through having these strong collaborations between institutions and uh, departments. Yes. Well, Berlin, the, uh, I think yeah, right, there's a really good nugget to segue into maybe anything else you want to leadership yes. related. Yes. Cause like Dr. Abel just mentioned right there, I mean, that relationship he has is really because of supportive chief, right. Yeah. And some yeah. of the things that they're able to do, really is because of that, right? So that's kind of like the gateway into opening things up. There you go. That's it. Absolutely. Because that's what exactly what I'm going to go to is uh, the rapid fire. So now you could talk to groups of individuals here, Doc, basically for them to start considering doing, thinking about to kind of uh, incorporate now to grow as leaders um, and, or to just, you know, start a conversation, talk more about physical fitness, wellness, funding, whatever it may be. So the three groups are newer, employees. The second one is mid-level supervisors. And the third one is the chiefs. So let's start with the first. So newer firefighters, right? We're talking about recruit firefighters, probationary firefighters. What's one thing that you would recommend those groups of individuals could start doing today to be better advocates in the physical fitness world, uh, reading data, research, being proactive in their careers early? What's something that you would recommend they do in anything that we talked about today? Wow. Great, great question here. Um, you know, I, Let me I think this one off. <laughs> I, I'd say they should start by getting in the habit of um, scheduling an annual there you comprehensive go. medical exam, uh, right? Some of the things absolutely. that fire department should be having or doing. Uh, so that's definitely a place to start just getting in the habit of doing that and getting proactive with all those types of things. Um, on that same note, establishing habits before they really take off into their careers, right? I guess this is more of the pre-hire level before they actually get to recruit where their whole life just dis dissipates. Um, establishing the habits of being physically active on a day-to-day -day basis, mm -hmm. right? Kind of things that Dr. Abel was, was mentioning earlier. Uh, even though we probably didn't highlight things like, uh, like, you know, sound nutrition habits, we probably didn't highlight that all that much today, but those types of things are, are, are worth looking into. 
uh, digging into some of the health and wellness concerns of the fire department, um, why they're there and what are things that they can do to kind of buffer those uh, negative impacts. Oh, I love that. I love that simply because uh, you're right. I mean, AZ talked about this last week is uh, newer recruits are busy, but they'll never be less busy as they progress in their career. They'll just be more busy. So establishing those habits mm-hmm. early, getting in the habit of getting annual comprehensive physical exams, because if you don't do it now, when, when are you going to do it? Well, probably when something comes up and that's now reactive and right. We want to be proactive with our health. So thank you, doctor. I love it. Thank you, Manny. That, yeah. that was awesome. And you know, what it brings to mind is um, you know, we're, we're trying to globally as a fire service, we're trying to change a culture in terms of health to promote health and wellness. And I think that happens from two perspectives, right? From essentially the, the, the grassroots level up. And so it's, it's, you know, not only kind of hiring, you know, individuals who are, are health and wellness minded, but those that might not have been to exposing them through educational programs and things like that, um, whether it is dietary, you know, health, whether it is mental uh, health, uh, dietary intake or mental health and physical health. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, it's going to start to kind of diffuse, if you will, kind of through, through the levels. But um, I think it's a top down and a bottom up approach. And, and, and that's critical from that perspective. Oh, I love that. You're right. All right. The next is that, uh, that middle emerging leader, what is something that they could do to grow their leadership arsenal here today with anything that we discussed? From my limited experience here, Berlin, it, 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 again, it, it's lead by example, and I think those that are kind of at that level can can demonstrate through when we're talking about health and wellness, you know, exercising on duty and, and getting their company to join them and making it a group effort. It's it it's a a team kind of mm-hmm. um, exactly camaraderie builds camaraderie. It's a team based atmosphere. There's something to be said for, you know, kind of sweating it out and, and, and you know, kind of struggling together and supporting each other. Um, instead of, oh, we're going to sit on the couch while, you know, the young, the new, the new, uh, the, the, the probie comes in and, and works out. No, we should be the one, you know, engaging with them to do this and stuff. And so you see these cultures, you all know it, right? You see the cultures on a station by station, a company by company basis, and it can be either really good from a health and wellness perspective and positive or not so much. Mm-hmm. So, um, the example leading by example is kind of the thing that, that comes to mind. Yeah. Well, I'll add on to that is yes. if if it's a, if we're talking about if you're an officer for a department that has an embedded subject matter expert, either a sports medicine provider, right, or a strength and conditioning professional or anything kind of similar to that, collaborate with them. Because for us, that company officer is probably the best force multiplier that we can have. And that's because that individual has some say in what the crew can do for, for their shift, right? So kind of the things that Dr. Abel just mentioned, if you know, if you're that company officer that wants your crew to, to work out, you can easily say, all right, we're, this is what we're doing at, you know, right after roll call or, or before whatever it is, right. As a group to build camaraderie and also to keep each other accountable or whatever it is, but also having some level of collaboration with that subject matter expert, you're kind of just utilizing a, a resource that one, not many departments probably have, mm-hmm. um, but also tapping into a resource that, you know, you know, kind of like we talked about earlier, there's, my ideas probably aren't the best. Some firefighter ideas might not, might not be the best, but also 
we might have some good ideas and you guys might have some good ideas. Exactly. So being able to come together and figuring out how to make that uh, possible is definitely a, a resource to take advantage of. That collaboration piece, I think it's huge. I think it's also some humility as well. I mean, because you're right, the, the, the company officer does have, you know, the, the leader of the crew, if you will. And to, for them to have the willingness to, or have the humility to, to collaborate with somebody else, maybe a different subject matter expert to not be like, you know what, I got this, I don't need help. But then they don't collaborate, but then now their crew suffers because they so quote unquote got it and they're not willing to to accept another opinion or, you know, information you from somebody else. You mentioned humility, and I think a, a really good example just came to mind where, you know, with my experience working with the military, I've come across different platoons on the army side where if there is a platoon leader who enjoys to run and is a very, you know, cardio-based type of athlete, it just so happens to seem that the rest of the platoon they will be doing exactly that throughout their entire uh, mm-hmm. uh, PT sessions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll just say I've seen a little bit of that in the fire service as well, right? But um, kind of some of the things that we talked about earlier were some types of exercises probably aren't best to do on shift versus some other types, which will have a little more benefit, kind of a time and a place. Absolutely. So hopefully, there's an ind- hopefully those types of individuals are actually able to, you know, say, hey, you know, maybe my way is not the best way, yep. and I can collaborate with this yep. individual. Absolutely. All right. Here we go. The uh, senior established leaders of organizations. Obviously, doctor, you uh, work closely with one of your chiefs uh, back where you were a firefighter. But what can chief officers do of organizations to better foster this uh, leadership conversation around some of the topics we discussed today? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it, it it's putting an emphasis in terms of resources for programming, educational programming, hiring, you know, subject matter experts as we're talking here with, with Manny and stuff, but that could be from a dietetics perspective. That could be from a mental health, a psychologist perspective. They have the power to direct, you know, a little bit of the budget, you know, towards some of these programming things that can enhance the health, the safety uh, and the readiness of, of their personnel. And so I think policies can be put in place, incentive-based systems for compliance in an exercise or a global wellness program, not just exercise, but these other things, if they're going to, to different workshops on, on nutrition or on mindfulness, you know, psychological or mm-hmm. mental health, uh, you know, I think they can, they can do a lot. They can have a huge impact from that. They're in position to, to do that. Um, and, and so I, I think it's a great place to be in and to have a large effect. And, um, you know, and, and yeah. sometimes, you know, these, these incentives and stuff, you, it's like, well, maybe the incentive is giving them, uh, uh, you know, additional paid time off. Maybe it's a, a, a slight discount on a health insurance premium if the compliance is to a certain level. Maybe it's a T-shirt, you know, that's saying you, you went through this program, you could, whatever it is, you know, the power of the t-shirts and the fire serve. So, <laughs> you know, funny but you I mean, know, right? <laughs> well, right. You know, how many do I have on? But, <laughs> but you know what buttons, you know, different, different buttons are going to push, you know, are, are relevant for different individuals and stuff. But um, those types of incentives where it's, it's just positive. If you do it, it's not punitive. Yes. Right. I think that's obviously the, the kind of the, the angle to take on it, but yeah. they're in a great position to do those types of policy and education based uh, yeah. programming for their department. Manny thoughts. Yeah. The, the nugget, I think I'll add to that. Cause all of that is, is perfect to me. 
I think if, if it's the type of a, a senior leader that understands the political landscape they have to navigate around and they understand just how to get things done, if they can find a way to provide some level of mentorship to hopefully an embedded subject matter expert, if they have one, I think that helps show that individual how the conversation changes at different levels. And I think that maybe segues back into some of the things we talked about earlier, which is we know we can implement these things, but how do we do it? Right. Yeah. You know, I, I, for, for someone like me, if I came to like a, you know, a mayor's like level discussion and I said, Hey, well, you know, these types of things improve firefighter health and wellness. Sure. They'll probably acknowledge that, but really at the end of the day, that's not what they're looking for. And I don't want to make it seem like they're the bad people. Cause that's just not what I'm really trying to convey here. Mm-hmm. It's just more of a, my, my dialogue probably has to change to, all right, well, here's the dollars saved component. This is how it impacts your initiatives. This is how it impacts uh, some of the things you're trying to get done or across the city, right. Or uh, concerning what the city might, situation might be in budgetary wise Mm -hmm. so uh yeah if there's senior leaders out there that understand that whole ball game if they can provide some level of mentorship to subject matter experts like myself to just you know kind of work together and be on the same page on how to again get things done uh mentorship team build and and uh collaborate i think we've talked about that today Piggybacking on the the occupational demands, we recently published a, a study. Uh, Sarah Lanham, one of my current, current PhD students, did this for her master's thesis on the impact of the gloves and occupational tasks on hand grip strength. Mm. If you look at, obviously, grabbing tools is pretty important for safety as well as effectiveness in performing tasks, but the, t- the gloves alone decrease grip strength by 33%. Just by putting a glove on and squeezing, you lose 33% of your strength. Hmm. Then when you perform occupational tasks in the gloves, you lose 62% of your strength compared to your baseline. So anyways, this has, we're really off topic and it's out of place, but you know, with in terms of relevant, how we talked about before. So in terms of, you know, Manny can appreciate this, you know, the importance of specificity in, in our strength and conditioning program to prepare for the job. Yes. Um, we need to make sure we're doing some stuff with, with grip strength, yes. um, you know, and okay. there's a lot of different types of things that, that could be utilized, you know, there, but you know, everything from wrapping towels and, you know, around a barn doing pull-ups to suitcase carries and farmers carries and deadlifts, et cetera. Don't underestimate, you know, the importance of grip strength, especially then when you have a vibrating saw in your hand, yes. et cetera, that vibration probably has an additional negative benefit, uh, negative effect. So I don't know why I go into grip strength, but it's no, just, it. um, there's, there's oh. another piece of it. And so it's not always about, you know, the effect on aerobic capacity yes. in the gear, but here's a, here's an impact on the strength side of the continuum. No. And I love that. And one I last piece, that. I'm just going to, uh, jump right into that because one of the biggest challenges that we have, or especially early on with recruits is one of the challenges are exactly what you said. Like these gloves are so big, right? I have no dexterity in, the, in, in my fingers because of it. And it go, it, it, you just confirmed everything. Number one, the gloves are way too big, right? They're, there's no firefighter glove that fits right, if you will, right? They're all right. way too right. big, right? They're protective and they're, they're, they're designed the way they are. Otherwise we wouldn't be using them. But so you, you just said training grip strength. Uh, that's, you know, I don't think we can highlight that any better than what you just said. 
training with the gloves? Would that help? Or what? what's an additional, obviously, if everything else, you just said it, just train grip strength, do not neglect grip strength. But uh, with training with those heavy gloves, with those gloves that are too big, doing, you know, incorporating that into maybe outside training, right? If you're going to be doing, you know, pull-ups or push-ups or whatever, you know, barbell training, use our firefighter gloves. I mean, or, or what are some other modalities or methods to train grip strength? For the job. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think that's an excellent suggestion, Manny. I don't know where your head is at. I was just thinking about the towel and grabbing, doing a lot to... of barbell, doing barbell stuff, you know, and sustained carries with kettlebells. Kettlebells are a little bit thicker diameter, which kind of mimics some of the equipment and saws and pike poles and things like that, that a firefighter might use, but you could use a towel yeah. or yeah, you put your gloves on as long as it's not a safety consideration, yes, but we do need, yeah, you're right. Train with the gloves. I mean, how much more specific than, than that? Okay. And those there are some go. of the things that we usually relay to some of our new hires or pre-hire uh, in, within our pre-hire programs. One of the things I usually uh, highlight first is let's start with just building overall strength, right? I think you you can definitely improve your grip strength when, you're, when we're just talking about like maybe in, increasing our ability to deadlift heavier weights. Mm -hmm. But then you start adding in some of the other pieces in there, right? The, for kind of grip endurance, um, the, the loaded carries, the changing the, the way you're gripping a, a carry, uh, you know, with the plate, if you can pinch it with your fingers, you know, if you use the towels, like kind of Dr. Abel suggested, those types of things are beneficial. And then, yeah, we usually suggest maybe using like a winter work glove because most folks aren't going to be able to go out and buy yeah. a 70, $80 pair of structural fire gloves. Right. The closest thing that I so far have come across is maybe using a winter work glove that you can probably get on Amazon for 20 bucks. Yep. You know, maybe you use those for carries practice tying knots with those uh, after like some type of fatiguing type of interval or something. Right. Yeah. Um, so those types of things that you can probably incorporate. Love that. All right, here we go. The reason we were here today was from a leadership challenge. So the leadership challenge, uh, Doc, is where we end the episode. And we ask, if willing, uh, to challenge another individual out there to help us continue to expand and elaborate on the leadership conversation. And so I would ask, is there anyone out there? Anyone doesn't have to be in this industry, could be in any industry. Someone that you believe might have a, a conversation, a message, a philosophy on leadership um, that others can learn and benefit from. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to advocate for Chief Jason Wells, who's the fire chief in Lexington uh, Fire Department in Lexington, Kentucky. Ah, thank you for that. And uh, what we'll do is at a later date, we'll just uh, exchange contact info and we'll reach out to Chief Wells and see if he'd be willing to take us up on, on leadership challenge. So um, lasting leadership thoughts, doctor, before we close on the kitchen table. Leadership thoughts. Wow. Yeah. Deep thoughts uh, yeah. on leadership with, with uh, Mark Abel. Um, I don't know. I'm just a researcher, Berlin. So, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, what I do know is from my perspective as a researcher, it, it takes two to tango. And for us to do anything to try to provide some of these evidence-based practices um, for the fire service, we need strong leaders that are willing to collaborate and willing to really willing to go out of their way to provide us with access to their personnel. Maybe that, you know, in our case, it means testing them on duty because it enhances our compliance mm -hmm. in, in our research studies mm -hmm. and stuff. So, you know, um, I am so appreciative of leadership that is willing to try to yeah. move the needle in the fire service, but by taking 
time and resources out of their department to support those yeah. research efforts and stuff. It's pretty easy to just say thanks, but no thanks. We got yeah. enough going on and I sure. get that. But um, it has been so beneficial to the stuff that we do. And, and hopefully some of the things I've shared, you know, with the audience today are demonstrate, you know, those are the direct product of these collaborations um, with some wonderful leaders in the fire service. If there's a, if there's a research that uh, you would propose, I could propose it up my chain. Obviously, I work in a train division and Manny knows this. Uh, that serves 1300 members obviously with, with manny and his department there's another thousand plus so if there's if there's uh some research or some ideas shoot them my way and i'll i'll see what we can do on this end so, well that sounds good i i certainly will and a shameless plug you mentioned about you know how do you get in touch or whatever you know on linkedin i'm pretty active in sharing the things that we're currently doing and, and places we're going and, and awesome. things like that so you can look me up on, on yes. LinkedIn. so um, dr mark abel on linkedin is that what it is yeah. Yeah. That should, that should get you there. And is there another uh, means of Avenue of getting a hold of uh, Dr. Abel or your research team, uh, university of Kentucky or. Yeah. Um, yeah. We have a website there. Um, my email is mark.abel, M-A-R-K.A-B-E-L at U-K-Y.E-D-U. Uh, you can certainly uh, do that, but um, you can find me Mark Abel on, on LinkedIn A-B-E-L, and um, happy to continue a conversation there if you have questions, uh, et cetera. So. Awesome. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in today to the kitchen table. We truly hope that you found this time valuable. And we hope that we've inspired you to take action, to lead, and to spread the leadership conversation. Until next time, be safe, be intentional, and stay curious. Mark Abel does beach. <laughs> <laughs>